designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone. Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers if you like. (laughs) The official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tales behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today. Now, Shaw today, just to give you an idea of their impact, is one of the fastest gentrifying parts of the city. But the reason that it's not totally gentrified, the reason that there are still poor people that live in Shaw today, is because of the work of MICO. All of the low-income scatter site housing that's built right next to the black churches in Shaw, most of that was built by this organization with those urban renewal dollars, right? And it was part of this idea that black folks should have self-determination, both political and economic. And that meant being able to own and operate your own home so nobody could kick you out. Welcome to Tangible Remnants. I'm Nikita Reed, and this is my show, where I explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. I'm excited that you're here, so let's get into it. Welcome back. This episode is going to be a little different than others, since this is the podcast version of the live show I did at the Octagon House last month. The live show was such a fun event, and many thanks to everyone who came out to support And my two guests were the perfect people for the conversation. As you'll hear, Sarah Schoenfeld and Derek Musgrove share a wealth of information about DC, and they are such a good time. We discuss why Alexandria, Virginia is no longer part of DC, the difference between the civil rights movement and the black power movement, DC's home rule, Stokely Carmichael, go-go music, and so many other gems that will resonate with Washingtonians. The live show was part of a series hosted by the Architects Foundation called Revealing Parallel Histories Hidden in Plain Sight. And the foundation was an amazing host. They even arranged for a visual recording of the live show, compliments of Dominic Mann visuals. So if you want to see into the room where it happened and maybe hear a little bit of the Q&A, be sure to check out the Architects Foundation's YouTube channel. I'll make sure to put links in the show notes. During the live show, we discussed a few images that were projected on the screen. So if you haven't subscribed to the podcast Instagram account yet, now's a great time to do so. 
So head over to Tangible Remnants on Instagram to see the photos you'll hear discussed in this episode. Now during the podcast, you'll hear Sarah and Derek tell their stories of how they got into the work that they're currently doing. For now, I'll share their bios so you'll know where their journeys have led them so far. Sarah Schoenfeld is an independent scholar and public historian in Washington, D.C. Her work has addressed the history and evolution of D.C. neighborhoods, the city's racialized housing landscape and planning regime, the intersection of race and historic preservation, as well as the history of organizing for civil rights, Black power, and Black governance. She co-founded the Digital Public History Project, Mapping Segregation in Washington, D.C., which documents the historic extent of racially restricted housing in the district, along with other mechanisms of segregation and displacement. Sarah is also on the leadership team of the DC Legacy Project, which is working to secure the future public use of five historically landmarked public housing buildings for cultural and educational activities at Berry Farm in Southeast DC. George Derek Musgrove, PhD, is an associate professor of history and Africana studies at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. He earned his PhD from New York University and is a current DC resident with his wife and two sons. He is the author of Rumor, Repression, and Racial Politics, How the Harassment of Black Elected Officials Shaped Post-Civil Rights America, as well as the co-author of Chocolate City, A History of Race and Democracy in the Nation's Capital, which he co-authored with Chris Myers-Ash. In addition to being an author, Derek has also created a web-based map called Black Power in Washington, D.C., which highlights Black power activism in the nation's capital. His work has appeared in the Washington Post, National Public Radio, the New York Times, and The Root. He is currently working on a book project tentatively titled, We Must Take to the Streets Again, The Black Power Resurgence in Conservative America from 1980 to 1997, which explores the burst of Black activism that rose in opposition to the urban crisis and the conservative retrenchment. So as you now know, Sarah and Derek have the credentials and experience to back up all the knowledge that they lay down in this episode. The live show was such a good time, and I really hope you're able to hear the good vibes as you listen in on this replay. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation between me, Sarah Schoenfeld, and Derek Musgrove. Thank you. Well, I am so very grateful y'all are here. I will ask for a little bit of grace because this is my very first live show. Usually when I'm doing podcasts, it's Zoom headphones talking to people in person, but this is going to be amazing. I'm very excited about this. Um, The levels are working. I'm just checking the mic and things. And thank you, Dom, for recording. So this is going to be recorded and then published later. So we're not publishing. We're not live right now, just so you know. Breathe. It's okay. You need to shift a little bit. It's all right. (laughs) And so um, I'm very grateful to be here. And so when I started the podcast, I wanted to talk about the intersection of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender, because for me, they're all connected. And there's not that many people who have my vantage point in the sense where of the 100,000 licensed architects in the country, about 2% are African-Americans and 500-ish are Black females. That's So there's not many of us. And then... Uh, partnering that with the preservation side, there's not many preservationists of color either. But for me, preservation and sustainability, that's my jam. Talk about that a lot. So I will do my best not to nerd out too much. 
but I'm very, I was invited to be here um, by one of the board members of the Washington Architecture Foundation, Constance Lai. Um, and so she was like, well, would you come do a live show? And I was like, sure. What do you want me to talk about? She's like, whatever. <laughs> cool. All right. So then I was like, well, if we're in D.C., why don't we talk about D.C.? And then when I was like, well, if I'm talking about D.C., I know exactly who I'd want to interview to talk about D.C. And it's these two lovely people to my left. And so Sarah Schoenfeld, she is a historian with Prologue D.C. And we've been working together on a couple of different context studies. Basically, I get to be the jock on these context studies. Sarah does the narrative. We'll talk through the sites and all that. And then I get to be like, oh, that property still exists. <laughs> Has brick. All right. So I get to do more of the architectural where she's doing a lot more of the narrative, the history, the resources, which is amazing. And then Derek Musgrove, he is also amazing. I met him through Sarah for another context study we were working on. And so Sarah and I started working together on doing 20th century civil rights sites in Washington, D.C. And then Derek joined the team for our next context study where we started looking at black power sites within D.C. And for those of you who are like, well, Civil rights and black power, they're the same thing. <laughs> we will get into it. Um, and so with that, I feel like why don't I let each of you say a little bit about yourself and then uh, we'll get into some questions. Sure. Thanks. Um, this, is, this is really fun to be here. And thank you all for coming. So I am a native Washingtonian. I am a proud graduate of the D.C. Public Schools. And I've been back here in, in D.C. Uh, since 2000. So I barely left. <laughs> um, got a master's degree in history at Northeastern University with a focus on public history. So with the intention of being a historian in the public sphere, working on exhibits, actually documentary films was sort of my first area that I, I was working in at a company called Blackside, which most famously made the series Eyes on the Prize in the 1980s, really seminal history of the civil rights movement that I grew up, sort of that's how I learned about the history of civil rights in America through that series when I was, you know, a teenager. In D.C., over the last, I don't know, since around 2010, maybe a little bit before then, I, I sort of like honed in on doing D.C. history, D.C. neighborhood history, which is really exciting for me because although I had grown up in, I had grown up here, there's so much I did not know, so many neighborhoods I didn't know. I started that work as a historian for the DC Neighborhood Heritage Trails. So um, the, the series of, of signs you see around the city in, in lots of different neighborhoods, there's about 20 of them, 20 different trails, so, which, which are sets of about 20 signs each in lots of different neighborhoods. I worked on a number of those and continued that work as a co-founder of uh, the company that I'm involved with now called Prologue DC. And at the same time, we founded a, a project called Mapping Segregation in Washington, D.C., which I can talk more about if there's an opportunity, but I don't want to take up all the time introducing myself. <laughs> so let's stop there. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. So you can see this is part of why I absolutely wanted her in this conversation. Yes. Derek, over to you. Well, first off, thank you. Thank you, Nikita. Uh, thank you, Sarah, for, for, for sitting next to me. Thanks to the folks at Octagon House uh, for... Uh, having us. And I'm Derek Musgrove. I, I am not a DC native. I have to start with that. But I always follow up with neither was Marion Barry uh, <laughs> or Chuck Brown. I could go on for, for a long time. Frederick Douglass. Um, uh, but but I, I started coming to the city in the mid 1990s and just fell in love. I came for the clubs up on U Street. So those of you who were a little longer in the tooth, you know, State of the Union, uh, Republic Gardens. And of, and of course, the Ritz, of course, the Ritz downtown. Yeah, there you go. Testifying. Um, 
and and I decided after I finished finished my degree that I was going to come back to the city and, and live here. And so that was in in the uh, the late '90s. Settled down, really settled in the early 2000s. And I stumbled into DC history along the way, and, and really came to love it. And so I, I wrote co-wrote Chocolate City with uh, my, my good friend and co-author Chris Myers Ash, and have just been continually pulled back into DC history over the the subsequent years. And that has not been a bad thing. And so I, we'll get into that though in the question and answer. Yes, yes, uh, absolutely. I'm, I'm going to leave it at that. Very, very good. <laughs> Well, so one of the things, uh, so one of the books that I read last year that was one of my favorites was actually Chocolate City, written or co-authored by Derek. So I wanted to start with this map. And for those who are listening on the podcast, when this gets published, check the Instagram at Tangible Ruminants and to see the slides that we're talking about. Um, and so this is a map of New Columbia, which didn't really exist eventually. So, you know, there was this idea that there would be New Columbia, which is kind of outlined in the black, and then D.C. is there. But the main reason I wanted to show this map was to say, if you don't know why Virginia is not part of D.C., or rather why Alexandria is part of Virginia and no longer part of D.C., Chocolate City is definitely the book you should read. I grew up in northern Virginia, and I learned so much more about D.C. and all of the the ins and outs of it than I did even in my AP history class. So highly recommend. Um, I also love the way that the narrative is written because it's almost it feels very salacious. Almost like, oh, dang. And then what happened? What? It's like, hey, these people have been dead for like hundreds of years. But still, it feels very much like all the tea is being spilled. And it's amazing. Plug for the book. Super good. And so with that, Derek, I would love for you to talk a little bit more about what got you or what started you to wanting to write Chocolate City and how that book came about. Sure. So there's a short answer, then there's a slightly longer answer. And I'll I'll do the short answer quickly. Uh, It's because Chris Myers Ash uh, came to me one day and said, let's write a book on D.C. Uh, And I... I thought Chris was one of the most wonderful people I've met. He's an excellent writer. And I said, okay. So, so that, was, that was the main reason. Okay. The reason that he came to me with that request uh, was because I was sitting down with him a couple of weeks before. I was telling him this positively absurd story uh, about how I had first come to have to teach D.C. history. So I you know, started my, my first job out of graduate school at uh, the University of the District of Columbia. And... Uh, DC history is a core class in the history department there, but I was not teaching it when I was first hired because I knew nothing of DC history, except for a little bit of Walter Pontroy there, a little bit of Marion Barry there. I really didn't know any of the rest. And we had this policy that if your classes do not fill on the first day of school, they're canceled right then and there and you're assigned other classes. And so I was teaching, I think, US and African-American history my African-American history class did not fill. Uh, I, I think I had eight students who needed 10. Okay. And so I went to my chair and I said, you know, what do I do? And she's like, well, what you do is you teach DC history tomorrow. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> oh my God, this, is, this can't be real. Uh, and, and so I stumbled through the semester. It was a big mess. And I tell Chris this story. We're laughing about it. And I, I say at the end, you know, God, I wish there was like a, a more up-to-date book. Mm -hmm. Uh, that I could have used to sort of help me with my lecture notes, but also assign to my students. And Chris was, he sort of went, went, yeah, yeah, hmm. And he's like, yeah, somebody should write that book. And Chris goes, yeah, somebody should write that book. And a week later, he just just walks into my office and, you know, hands me a a book proposal. And he's like, you know, do you you want in? And I said, said, yes. And so that's how it sort of all happened. I stumbled into it. And then Chris pulled me further. That's an amazing stumble. I'm very glad you stumbled and said yes. (laughs) Because that book was, it's one of those ones, and I was, just, I was listening to it as opposed to reading it, but it's still like, it reads so 
salaciously. I was like, oh. <laughs> and then even kind of learning about the Pearl and then seeing kind of the connection at the wharf, wharf now between mm. Pearl Street and knowing, learning more about that attempted slave escape and what happened there. So it's like that connection I thought was fascinating. I don't do too many spoilers, but, you know, I recommend. And so, Sarah, you touched a little bit on um, what prompted you to start Prologue BC and kind of getting in and wanting to do more public history and all that. I know that your research a little bit has started to focus more so on civil rights sites, African-American sites. How did that pivot start? Well, I mean, a lot of a lot of what we did with the in, in working the, the neighborhood, the D.C. neighborhood heritage trails encompassed a lot of black history mm-hmm. there. And, and in fact, so in the, the 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 organization that produced these was Cultural Tourism D.C. There had been a guide to black history in D.C., the African-American heritage trail that had been done that was originally done in 2003 by Dr. Maria McWhorter. And that was sort of, I think, around the founding days of this group, Cultural Tourism DC, that, that then sort of started launching all these neighborhood heritage trails after doing, really focusing in on the U Street corridor, uh, which really hadn't been that, even that history hadn't been that well documented at that mm-hmm. time or like very publicly known. Like now we're all like, oh yeah, Black Broadway. Like, of course, everybody knows that, right? But like in the 90s, Actually, like that history was not very visible. So um, that was sort of where that started, that that neighborhood heritage trail program. And with and with uh, Maria's Maria McCorder's work on the African-American heritage trail. And then that evolved into um, there being plaques placed on 100 different sites around the city, uh, marking African-American history specifically. Uh, And that work was done by my my current colleague, Mara Cherkaski, um, under the leadership of Jane Levy at Cultural Tourism DC. And, and in conjunction with that, this big database was produced of all of African-American Heritage Trail database. Eventually, that kind of like didn't get stopped being maintained, in part because Cultural Tourism DC lost its funding and that got moved and there wasn't um, whatever, the infrastructure kind of died out. So when the National Park Service started providing grants several years ago to do work specifically focused on Black history sites and history of other marginalized groups in around the country, uh, we became aware of those, that funding that became available uh, and, and worked closely with the D.C. Historic Preservation Office at the time. Uh, Patsy Fletcher, who you, you may have known, was, was still there. She had done a lot of really great Black history work in D.C., yeah with the DC Historic Preservation mm-hmm. Office. We worked closely with her and Kim Williams there to, uh, to write a grant to, to start doing this, to do a, a civil rights focused. Actually, it was an online tour of civil rights sites uh, in the district. And we uh, ended up creating a, and so we worked closely with Patsy and Kim to sort of identify and really drawing on not, not just Maria's work, but like this work goes, I mean, there's people that and actually, yesterday in the Washington Post, there was such a great article about the DeForest brothers. Yeah. Yes. I mean, they were really the originals. And I should maybe, I don't know, yep. we yep. should just talk about that too. Yes. <laughs> um, but so they did this, they were doing this work in the 70s and they really like built the, the infrastructure for this work. Yes. And uh, so we were, so in drawing on all that, we then started to, you know, with really the, the Park Service fu- providing funding, we, we produced the civil rights tour. And then out of that came the National Register, this multi-property document that, yeah. that, that we worked on together. Yeah, and so yeah. we'll <laughs> circle back to the DeForest Brothers in a second. Imagine earning continuing education credits while doing exactly what you're doing right now. Well, you can. 
Gable Media has revolutionized the way you earn your continuing education credits with a groundbreaking approach. Forget running around town and scouring the internet for credit-worthy courses. Fulfill your CE requirements effortlessly by listening to engaging podcasts just like the one you're listening to now. Our podcasts are designed to educate, entertain, and inspire, all in a user-friendly environment. But wait, there's more. Architects, Gable Media is also approved as an AIA Continuing Education Services provider. Upon completion, we handle everything, from reporting your hours directly to the AIA, to storing your certificates in your personal Gable Media profile for your self-reporting needs. So follow the link in the show notes and start earning your credits in the most innovative and entertaining way possible with Gable Media. Want to learn more about the unknown ladies of architecture? Then I recommend you listen to She Builds Podcast, where we tell the stories of remarkable women who have shaped the design and construction industries. Hi, I'm Jessica. I'm Nurjiti. And I'm Lizzie. After we graduated from Syracuse University School of Architecture, we set out to learn and share the untold stories of women that traditional school curriculum left out. One day, there's an announcement on campus that women had been seen wearing, quote, inappropriate clothing. Gasp. What the heck does that mean? Yeah, so it turns out that Ruth and her fellow classmates were these women. They had field classes where they're doing welding, forging, and foundry work. And obviously, they have to wear jeans to those classes instead of, like, dresses or whatever else. While Gertie was in school, she wasn't just going to classes, trying to stay alive like some of us. I know that was me in school, just taking it day by day. Yes. But not Gertie. She became the president of Evigol, an honorary association of Cornell women architects. Of course she did. These are stories not taught in schools. Women who've molded the world of architecture, construction, and development for over a century. From Jane Jacobs to Ray Eames, She Builds Podcast explores the legacies of trailblazers. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform. Let's fill the gaps in history together. All you have to do is follow the link in the show notes and subscribe and be part of a movement to expand industry narratives. But the multi-property document that we're working on, um, basically it's a framework and it's a context study. So basically whenever a property wants to get listed on the National Register of Historic Places, particularly as part of the theme of civil rights, 20th century civil rights sites in D.C., they'll be able to use this contact study as a way to plug into the framework without having to do all of the research that goes into the, the importance of it or the theme. So basically, it's a way to help future researchers be able to get more sites added to the National Register of Historic Places a little bit easier. Um, and part of that, that ties into the DeForest Brothers. So the National Register of Historic Places is the, it's maintained by the National Park Service, It's basically the register you need to be on to be eligible to receive federal historic tax credits. It's also kind of the register that tracks our historic places. That's what you want to get on. In the 1970s, there were not that many places on the National Register that celebrated African-American heritage or Black heritage. And so Vincent DeForest and his brother, they changed that. Because of them, they are responsible for about 75% of the nominations on the National Register that attributed to Black and African-American culture. So it's like being mindful of who is actually writing the nominations, 
who's telling the story, who's actually using the tools that exist to make sure that we're expanding the knowledge is huge. Um, and shout out to Amber Riley, who also, also introduced us. But she was quoted in the article and she is currently at Rutgers, but she's about to be at UPenn as the new director for the Center for the Preservation of Civil Rights Sites. I think I got that right. But she is in contact with the DeFore- or with Vincent DeForest, and she's been really elevating their story to share that because most people don't realize the importance that they had. Um, and the DeForest Brothers, their organization was um, ABC... African American Bicentennial Thank you. Yes. Derek knows the name. Yep. I was like, oh, ABC. Perfect. Thank you. So, yeah. So, anyways, we digress. Again, we, we can nerd out on historic preservation and history stuff, so bear with us. But that's why you're here. It's great. Um, and so... Circling then back to, let's get into D.C. history a little bit. So I'm going to go to the next slide. And Derek has some slides. We're going to talk about some population. Derek, why don't we get into the population of D.C. a little bit? Sure. So, so in the slide that you all see in front of you, uh, with the blue line on top is the total population of the city. I'm really interested in that, that X made by the orange and the white lines. The orange line is, is a white population of the city. Uh, the gray one is a black population of the city. And that X is really the, the fascinating thing for me because, you know, we always talk about, you know, particularly among uh, uh, older African-American residents of the city, I mean, folks sort of start off by saying, like, I'm a native Washingtonian, right? And you get this feel that the entire black population of Washington, D.C. Has, has been here since the 19th century. And then you look at this map and you realize that more than half of the black population of Washington, D.C. got here after 1950. 50 roughly, right? And so you had a black population of about 198,000 in 1940 at the start of World War II. It's a large black population. But another 300,000 people come in the next 20 years, right? Which gives us the black majority because there's this corresponding white outmigration of roughly about 300,000 as well, right? And so that's why you get that giant X. It's really that population change that shifts, you know, among many others, among, you know, sort of other historical developments like the passage of federal civil rights legislation, the Supreme Court shifting behind civil rights cases. But it's also that population change that gives us a move from civil rights to black power. And and that's a a long conversation. I don't want to make this this answer too long. Oh, I'm good? Okay. But, but the basic idea is that, you know, when the black population is, is this sort of pronounced minority, there is a large liberal white population that, that's sort of trying to figure out, particularly in the midst of the Cold War, how we can create a, a semi-multicultural society in which there's, there's rough e- e- equality of opportunity. And that, that's, that's reasonably comfortable, I think, for the white majority because they would never be subsumed by a black majority population. They, they wouldn't have to worry too much about being ruled by black people, which, by the way, in the 1940s and 1950s is, is nutso for, for a lot of white Americans. On the other side of things, uh, you have a, a black population that, that realizes because it's a major- minority that it has to work with the white majority. And it's looking for friends. It's looking for people that it can work with, right, particularly among middle-class African-Americans. Once you get that population shift, it, that dynamic is just gone. The vast majority of the white population is sequestered on the far side of Rock Creek Park after, after, all the, after those 300,000 white uh, D.C. residents leave. They don't really have to interact with black D.C. in the same way that they had when you actually had people in transitioning neighborhoods in the center of the city. 
And those 300,000 new African-Americans, much poorer than the, the people that they're coming to live next to who are Black, are coming from North Carolina, Virginia, South Carolina, parts of Maryland. Um, and they're just not even thinking about integrated living in the same way that, that some of the Black folks who have been living in D.C. may have uh, prior to them. Plus, by 1970, there's 70 plus percent of the population. What are we even talking about here? Right. I mean, th there's no need for friends when you're 70 percent of the population. <laughs> you just do what you want and everybody else kind of has to agree. Um, and so so all of that really you know, spoke to uh, th these demographic changes, spoke to the, the changing politics of the city in a way that I thought was very helpful to sort of foreground. And so that's why I wanted to put that up first. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this was super helpful in terms of also just looking at the change, change over time, because that's the thing that keep, I, I keep reminding myself that everything is changing over time. Historic preservation, even as a field, it's not about keeping things stagnant. It's about how do we actually um, sensitively manage change, because uh, everything is always changing. And so before we jump ahead to Black Power, though, I wanted to jump back to civil rights a little bit. And so I know a lot of people think of them as one and the same, them being civil rights the civil rights movement and the black power movement, often they're thought of as one and the same. Um, but I know, Sarah, for our civil rights context study, we had a very particular period of significance. So would you go ahead and talk a little bit about what framed that significance? Yes. And actually, Derek was instrumental in that framing, yeah, if you recall, <laughs> because we called on him early in the process to decide what the criteria were going to be um, for this study, because we, ha we had to establish some boundaries, right? So Derek very helpfully sort of defined, you know, what we meant by the history of organizing for civil rights. Um, and I think you said specifically, this is like the struggle to guarantee, you know, the rights uh, the, uh, that were supposed to be guaranteed by the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendments. So these, this was about and it was mostly about integration and, and demands for equal treatment. And so we're looking at themes like desegregating the schools, you know, equal education, equal employment, uh, voting rights, criminal justice, or what I think that is also now referred to by the Park Service in their thematic study, criminal injustice. Uh, and so we actually, and I think that that's actually one area that is less included traditionally in talking about the history of civil rights organizing, uh, organizing around uh, police brutality. I think that's more commonly associated with the Black Power Movement, but in fact, people, that has been a really central issue since the beginning of the 20th century, and, and we, we pulled that out a lot in, in the civil rights study, like the work that the NAACP was doing in the 1950s here in D.C., uh, for example. In the time period that we set was 1912, which was uh, when the uh, D.C. branch of the NAACP was established uh, at a time of rising segregation. And and I guess it was you could say more about it, but I'll say <laughs> um, uh, so 1912 uh, to 1974, which with the inauguration of our first home rule government. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because that was one of the things we wanted to make sure that we expanded on, particularly being in D.C., that D.C. still to this day has some legislative issues in terms of taxation without representation. And so when we're talking about civil rights sites or civil rights, particularly in D.C., we needed to make sure we ex included home rule. It wasn't just going to end with the passage of the Civil Rights Act. And so that was part of that. And then so, Derek, in terms of black power, would you talk a little bit about that period of significance and how you were defining kind of that period of black power? Sure. So it, oddly enough, I, I had some of the same 
difficulties when it came to definition as, as, as Sarah uh, uh, and Nikita did uh, when it came to black power. Um, so I started this off just as the idea to put together a website. I wanted to create a map of all of the major black power events and organizations that ever existed in the city uh, during the black power era, which I'm dating from roughly 1966 to roughly 1976, uh, right? Uh, and so, you know, the, the, the date that people typically choose for the start of the black power movement is when Stokely Carmichael you know, calls for black power on the Meredith March against fear in Greenwood, Mississippi. And then 76 is when a lot of the, the more radical black power organizations begin to really fall apart. That's a national definition. You know, that, that's, that's basing the definition on things that happened in Mississippi and organizations that fell apart in New Jersey. Uh, and I really wanted to create sort of a local definition because my website was going to be all about the, the DC black power movement. And so what I decided was I'm actually going to start in 1961, uh, oddly enough, because that was the year that the Nation of Islam had actually been working, which is the, the primary black nationalist organization in the country for most of the 20th century. And it had really tried to do a huge recruitment drive in, in the district. As part of that big recruitment drive, it had built uh, a mosque on New Jersey Avenue, which is, is now uh, a... a um, an Orthodox uh, Muslim mosque. So it's no longer part of the nation. The nation's mosque is out in uh, Ward 8 on Alabama Avenue. But, but they had built it. They had had these huge uh, events at the Uline Arena. I mean, Malcolm X is speaking to like 12,000 people at Uline Arena. Elijah Muhammad is coming to town and doing rallies at Griffith Stadium. So 61 made, made sense as a, as a starting point. And then as, as I tried to find an endpoint, I couldn't. Uh, and that was largely because the, the, the people who had staffed the Black Power Movement not only built the district government, government but then they took it over. I mean, if you, if you look at our second mayor, Marion Barry, he's the first Black Power activist in the country to become a mayor of a major American city, over 100,000 uh, people. And this is, this is 1979. This is a couple of weeks after uh, he's been sworn in. And who comes to town? Well, the, the international revolutionary Pan-Africanist, his old buddy, Kwame Torre, because, of course, Stokely Carmichael had changed his name at that point to Kwame Torre. And he's in town to host African Liberation Day, which is sort of a staple of the Black Power movement in the district and continues all the way into the 1990s, right? It's, the first one is in 1972. I think the last one is in maybe 1999. That's in dispute among the people I've talked to. And so I decided that the best thing to do was to say that it starts in 61 and we end roughly in 1998. And that's when Marion Barry decides not to run for re-election. That's when the year that Stokely Carmichael passes away. Uh, he has a very aggressive form of cancer and, and has his last major event in the city. And it's right about when big events like African Liberation Day begin to decline until they, they, they essentially close down. So I see Black Power as a generational movement here in the district. And it's key defining features. You know, uh, Sarah talked about sort of getting the rights of the, the, the Reconstruction Amendments. The key defining features of Black Power are three things, uh, just like the three amendments. <clears throat> it's Black self-defense in a moment that's rife with police brutality. It's Black self-love uh, at a time when American public schools are still assigning books like Little Black Sambo to elementary school kids, right? And it is um, uh, Black self-determination. Uh, at a time when the city is ruled by segregationists in Congress. 
right? And so the Black Power Movement is really focused on projecting those things, gaining those things for the African-American community. And they work on it for an entire generation and it shapes district politics for that entire time. Mm -hmm. Wow, listen, this is why they're here. Oh my goodness, <laughs> sorry, I'm just like, even just hearing that and thinking also about um, how the DC government has changed and the idea that DC was run by, at one point in time, a committee of three appointed by the president, segregationist. And part of the reason why DC wasn't given the vote was because basically there's too many black people here. They're not going to know how to vote, that sort of thing. The fact that what is now Alexandria got retrocessioned back to Virginia because white landowners wanted to be able to vote and hold slaves. So it's like there's a number of politics and policies that have shaped physically the shape of DC. Um, and then also the way that it's run and all that. So anyway, sorry, digress. Anything else you want to add is fine. But if not, I'm going to go back to the questions. Please. Um, all right. So on to the next one. Let me go back a slide because um, there was one more slide you wanted to chat through. I'm sorry. And so this one is um, see an architect holding a, a blueprint. <laughs> uh, say more. <laughs> so I, I think we can both claim this one. Do you want to you want to try and oh, this one? do it together? <laughs> Uh, or, or would you prefer that? Because it is. You start. She'll okay. add on. Um, so, so the gentleman on uh, your right is, of course, Walter Fauntroy, a pastor of New Bethel Baptist Church, now emeritus and semi-retired, and, and our former non-voting delegate to uh, Congress. Uh, of course, we've only had two, and they've been some of the most remarkable political minds in the Congress, Walter Fauntroy and then Eleanor Holmes Norton. And they're standing uh, in Shaw. I, I, I can't tell you the exact location uh, top of mind. And they're there as part of an initiative by the Model Inner City Community Organization, so MICO. Uh, MICO was an organization founded by Walter Fontre. It was really sort of a large umbrella organization. And its purpose was to take control of the urban renewal process in Shaw. I know all of you know about urban renewal and what it did to Southwest Washington, D.C. in the 1950s. Southwest was this, the country's first urban renewal site. And the, what federal planners did there, essentially, is they went into a 75% African-American majority poor community, and they just bulldozed it, except for the churches. I mean, that's why everything in Southwest looks like it was built in the 60s, because it was, <laughs> except right. for the churches. They bulldozed it, displaced all of those people. And when they rebuilt it, they rebuilt it in a way that, you know, basically federal bureaucrats would be able to walk to work. And so when it was repopulated, it was repopulated as 75% white and largely middle class. In other words, they kicked all the poor people out. And many of those poor people landed in places like Shaw, right? When those folks landed in Shaw, all of a sudden the federal government says, well, we're going to do a huge urban renewal site in Shaw. And everyone understood what had happened in Southwest. It wasn't a mystery. This 23,000 people were displaced in, in urban renewal in, in, in Southwest, right? And Shaw is bigger and more dense, mm -hmm. right? And so Fontroy began lobbying to try and make sure that, that local people controlled the urban renewal process. And so they got the dollars, they got the rebuilding, but they didn't get displaced. Uh, and he teamed up with a lot of local churches, a lot of activist organizations, he even brought Martin Luther King to town to lobby for this. And they're able to get control for a few years. I, I think uh, it was roughly three or four years where they had solid control over the process. Now, Shaw today, just to give you an idea of their impact, is one of the fastest gentrifying parts of the city. But the reason that it's not 
totally gentrified. The reason that there are still poor people that live in Shaw today is because of the work of MICO. All of the low-income scatter site housing that's built right next to the black churches in Shaw, most of that was built by this organization with those urban renewal dollars, right? And it was part of this idea that black folks should have self-determination, uh, both political and economic. And that meant being able to own and operate your own home so nobody could kick you out. And that has at least played out as this new sort of round of, of, of market-driven displacement uh, has, has really pushed most poor people out of Shaw, not the folks who live in those houses. Mm -hmm. We're going to pivot to that because we'll come back and we're going to um, end on Berry Farm. And I'm just kind of looking at the time and surprised at how fast it's going. We have about 10 minutes left before we open up for Q&A. Right, right? It flies, I'm telling you. <laughs> and so I wanted to put this map up just to show the spread of the different sites and kind of their geographic location of the 20th century civil rights sites throughout the city. So you can really see they're really located all over, um, all over the city. And I don't know, is, our, is the contact study public yet? We've gotten approval. I don't know. We'll find links for it and post it if they're available. But if not, it will be soon. Yeah, because it's going to be it's going to live at the on the National Park website or the National Park Service website. Um, and there are a couple other context studies and things there. But, you know, just we'll check out the Instagram. We'll put some links in the show notes. <laughs> but the next site I wanted to talk about Pivot 2 is Berry Farm. Um, and so this is a site that's in Anacostia in southeast D.C., and Sarah is part of the DC Legacy Project that is helping to work on this. So I will pivot to you. Yeah. So this is a project that I've been really engaged in uh, uh, for the past few years because this, so, so Berry Farm is a public housing development built on the site of a historic Black community that dates to 1867. This was the only place in the country where the, the federal government, Freedmen's Bureau, purchased land. They actually purchased 375 acres of land, much more than than much more than where the public housing is, um, for the express purpose of black land ownership. So the, the land was subdivided and sold individual lots to black families. And there was a long-standing, thriving black community there that sort of got increasingly divided over the years by highway building and, and other uh, infrastructure projects, uh, cut, lost access to the river, um, it had been right, it had been abutting the Anacostia River. And eventually, in 1941, you have the construction of a public housing project on land that was still black owned, uh, but then was taken back by the federal government using eminent domain from 23 landowners that were on that site uh, to build this public housing complex that has really itself been a very rich site of organizing around civil rights and anti-poverty organizing. And so we were able to make a case to the Historic Preservation Review Board in the midst of this public housing project being demolished, uh, that, that some of it should be saved as, as, you know, the homes of people that were really central in the civil rights organizing in the district and tenant organizing, including people who were plaintiffs in, the, in D.C.'s Bowling v. Sharp case, which was D.C.'s companion case to Brown v. Board of Education. The organizing for that case came out of the Berry Farm community. A tenant organizer named Etta Horn, uh, who lived also in one of these units, who went on to found the National Welfare Rights Organization. So we've, the site has been mostly demolished, but we've got these few buildings left to tell these stories in uh, and, and to tell the story, the longer story of this community, because there's really hardly any remnants of the Reconstruction era community there at all. Yeah, I just wanted to hold this up as an example of, of the kind of 
preservation work that's being done now that's really like, it was surprising actually to me that this site was designated because it's really, you know, to look at the buildings, they're not typical of of the kind of buildings that are going to be saved uh, for historic preservation. I really thank the community who came out and supported it. I mean, it wasn't, you know, I, I sort of laid out the history, but if it weren't for all the people that came to that hearing and really, you know, just spoke on on how important this site was, you know, I don't think it would have happened. Yeah. Uh, for the, for just for the stories that this place holds. Yeah. And so one of the things that this uh, site also highlights is the idea that preservation, particularly in this country, is on a sliding scale. And typically from an age value, the building has to be at least 50 years old or older to be considered historic. So we're up to, you know, 73. So buildings built before 1973 could be eligible to be historic. But also one of the things that Sarah and I found while we were doing the contact study, a lot of times um, preservation as a field has put more significance on the physical architecture and the integrity of the building itself, as opposed to the other six criteria that can go to whether or not something has integrity from a historic preservation standpoint. And so when we're doing this work, we had to think about that and the fact of what does it mean for sites that um, or have been systematically disinvested in that were built uh, for people who were not meant to be permanently there, that were not built to be architecturally significant or whatever, but they were still culture and history and important things that happened there, but they may not have the same architectural significance. So how do we, how do we make sure that we are blending preservation and using the tool and expanding it so that we're not causing more harm by ignoring the stories because the building isn't pretty enough like this building that we're in. So it's like, how do we recognize that there are scales to architecture, scales to history that need to be preserved at multiple levels? And so all that to say, preservation is, um, as a field is evolving. This conversations we're having here, the types of history that we're going to keep talking about are go- is going to keep changing. And it's going to start feeling a little bit more like memory than history as time keeps going on. Uh, but it's still work that's incredibly important that needs to be done. Um, one other thing I'll... A fact I learned at the um, Architecture Festival for Berry Farm, Uh, there is a documentary that's being made about the uh, site that will be available publicly at some point in time. We have more outs. Okay. But for those of you who are are familiar with DC and Go-Go Music, the Junkyard Band actually started at Berry Farm as well and was very instrumental. So Berry Farm also, we can thank them for the Junkyard Band. Yeah, (laughs) Go-Go Music. So with that, I know we are at 7 o'clock. I want to make sure that we have a little bit of time for questions. I believe there is a mic somewhere um, over here. Yep, there we go. Awesome. Any questions? Thank you so much for listening. Links to amazing resources can be found in the episode's show notes. Special thanks to Sarah Gilberg for allowing me to use snippets of her song, Fireflies, from her debut album, Other People's Secrets, which by the way, is available wherever music is sold. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the show. And now that Tangible Remnants is part of the Gable Media Network, you can listen and subscribe to all network partner content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Until next time, remember that historic preservation is a present conversation with our past about our future. We don't inherit the earth from our parents, but we borrow it from our children. So let's make sure we're telling our inclusive history. Saw the first fireflies of summer And right then I thought of you Oh
I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.